Hello, everyone. This is Jason. Hello. Jason Wallstrom, or, you know, call me the Jaystrom. Basically, I take Jason and Wallstrom, morph it together into Jaystrom. A long time ago, I read this Clive Barker book called The Great and Secret Show. And in the book, there was a man whose name was Randolph Jaffe. Eventually, that guy becomes the villain, I believe. It's been a long time since I've read it. But what's funny is Randolph Jaffe had a nickname that he was called, which was The Jaff. And I always thought that was funny. Jaffe, The Jaff. So when I thought of morphing Jason and Wallstrom together to Jaystrom, I was like, the Jaystrom sounds much better. <laughs> so that's how kind of the Jaystrom came about. And this was early 20s, guys. Maybe when I was 19 or something, I thought of this. I don't remember. But uh, some of my friends, you know, they were like, hey, that sounds cool. And I'd be called Jaystrom or the Jaystrom and just kind of stuck. So that's kind of where I get that from. And I still, you know, I'm the Jaystrom on Xbox Live. I'm the Jaystrom on PlayStation. Uh, So it's just kind of uh, my name. But uh, the reason I'm here today is because this is chapter one of an audio novel. Uh, It didn't begin as an audio novel. It... uh, is a book that I started working on a couple of years ago called Dead Ahead. Uh, Steven, the pop culture zealot, is the only person who knows anything of this. He's the only one who's read anything. Not uh, against, you know, anybody else who wanted to read it. You know, like, I wanted to show Bill so bad, but I was like, no, 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 only one person right now. Only one person who I could trust not to show it to anybody else or whatever. And I can trust Bill, but he's far away. It's easier to just, you know, look at Steven in the eye when he's telling me about it. And when I showed it to him, I didn't want critique. I don't want, well, you know, you misspelled some words here. Nothing like that. Or this sentence structure is off. Okay. Because this is the rough draft of it. Uh, If you read Stephen King on writing, he's all about just get the book done. Just get that first draft out. Then you start fixing things when you're done. Now, I will say this. I've got about 135 pages written of Dead Ahead, and it will be much longer, so it's not finished. The reason I want to do this is because it's just sitting there in a Word document on my computer, and I want to keep working on this story. So I thought, how can I get encouragement? How can I get somebody to light a fire under my ass? And I thought for a while how cool it would be to do like a makeshift audio book. And then I thought, how about an audio novel where I read chapter to chapter? And it will take me a while to get to actually the part that I haven't written anymore. And I thought, if I release chapter one and people dig it, and then chapter two, then chapter three, then I realize, I don't even realize what chapter, uh, it's, I'm going to say chapter eight or something is where I left off. But if people are like, yeah, I'm digging this, can't wait for the next chapter. And I'm like, holy shit, I don't have chapter eight done. And I'll just start writing again. It, almost like people are anticipating it and it'll help me get it done. That would be awesome. Do you know what I mean? So basically I'm looking for a little bit of encouragement and I didn't, wasn't sure I really wanted to release it to everybody, the whole world, because to be honest with you, um, I'm not a big, I like, I want to write, I like writing and stuff, but it's really intimidated 
about showing people my writing. It may suck or whatever. You guys understand, right? Um, so I thought, hey, there's a select group of patrons out there. I could release it to them behind a wall, which the only way you can get this is if you're a patron. Uh, and right there, boom, there's some people that I know that appreciate Entertainment Landfill. They know who I am. Uh, and I could just put it there. Hey, patrons, check this out. And maybe you will listen to this. Just stick it on your phone or whatever. Uh, drive in your car or ride the subway, wherever you're at. And just listen to me read chapter one. If you were entertained by it, let me know. Uh, if you it leaves off where you're like, wow, I want to hear chapter two. Keep going. Or, you know, if it doesn't sound like your cup of tea and you're like, whatever, um, that's fine too. But uh, basically, I'm putting this out there and just testing the waters. I will say this, though. In this story, there's F-bombs galore. That's just the way I write. There's profanity and stuff like that. So definitely don't listen to it around your children because because there are times where a character will drop an F-bomb or two. Just so you know that. <laughs> okay. It may not be in the finished novel that way, but this is the rough draft. This is the way it's flowing out of me. So, uh, guys, here is chapter one of Dead Ahead by Jason Wallstrom. Me. It's all me, baby. And I could tell you what it's about if you want, or you could find out yourself. Uh, but I will say this. It's horror. 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 That's a hard word to say because it sounds like you're either saying horror or horror. It's a horror story, but sci-fi also. It's kind of like a hybrid thing going on here. It takes place, guys, in the town of Mulberry. Also, there are lots of Nowhere and Mulberry Easter eggs in the book. Without further ado, listen to chapter one. Tell me what you think. I'll be here at the very end to bid you adieu and encourage you to send me some feedback. Thanks guys. Here it is. Dead ahead by Jason Wallstrom. Chapter one, Monday of the dead. After three summers of working at the hub, Henry had learned how to keep away from the heavy lifting jobs and stick to the menial tasks like sorting, filing and sweeping. Best of all, He'd figured out where to hide in this giant maze of crates and boxes, and those giant metal shipping containers that you would find on shipyard docks. This place was always busy with employees zipping around on forklifts and packing crates with peanuts and foam and newspapers. Henry always found a place to escape from the peering eyes of his father. Henry's dad was Clifford Hubley, and he was the owner. It's the only way that Henry could have possibly kept a job here this long because Henry was pretty worthless production-wise. But he was great for a laugh. Henry was always entertaining workers, doing an impression of his dad, or quoting last week's Simpsons episode, or even the latest movie comedy. Henry was a likable fellow. He was two years out of school, and he hadn't yet decided what to do with his life. He was pulling down a reasonable wage for a 21-year-old, and it kept him out of trouble. He spent most of his spare time playing video games and even toying around with his own games. Only he never put his full potential into it. He always seemed to find a way to get distracted by watching movies that he'd bit torn off the internet. He was a heavy set lad, 
He had been for most of his life, and had gotten used to his girth. He pretended to be comfortable in his own body, the way we tend to do, and was usually a happy person unless there was a cute girl around. Then his insecurities would pop up like a bad zit. He would make uncomfortable jokes, usually too many F-words and usually something gross or offensive. It was his defense. Make them laugh and make them laugh quick and maybe they won't notice what a loser you are. Yeah, he felt like a loser, but he hid it well by being a smartass and know-it-all, as some of the other workers called him. He knew all the actors' names in Hollywood. He knew all of the directors. He knew all the movies, and he loved to finish their sentences when talking about the latest blockbuster they had just seen the previous payday. He didn't notice that this irritated people, though. He was too busy working hard to prove himself to people like April, the girl in the front office. April had worked there for only six months, but she immediately became an object of affection for Henry. He first noticed her smoking out on the back dock. He didn't enjoy smoking, and he didn't particularly think it very attractive on a girl, but it didn't matter with April. He would steal a cigarette from some jackass in the break room and run out back, asking April for a light. She'd always oblige, and he'd quickly mention something lame like the weather. But you don't need much to start a conversation with April. She'd quickly start in on this week's problems, like how she didn't have enough money for gas to get to and from work, and how her mom was driving her crazy, and how her current boyfriend wasn't paying enough attention to her. This morning, though, she was quiet, taking a drag from her long cigarette and slowly exhaling. Henry stood there trying to gauge when to speak. It was a warm morning with a little breeze. The sun was already warming the cement slab that they stood upon. It was going to be a hot summer day. It's going to be hot today, I think, in the 90s. She said nothing. I think it was 88 yesterday. Uh, like, back to the future, 88 miles per hour? He thought to himself, wow, I got nothing. She slowly turned to Henry, waking from some far-off thought. You need a light, Henry? He smiled, realizing he didn't grab a smoke this morning. It wasn't his habit, really. It was his excuse to hang out with her. His habits had more to do with the sweets, or digital variety. Oh shit, I forgot to bring my smokes with me. He found a way to be more honest now. I was more concerned about you. You seem to be occupied with something. Is everything okay? Henry might have spent most of his time trying to impress people with his vast knowledge, but in reality, he was very uncomfortable in his own shoes, especially when it came to talking to girls. Girls like April. April reached down and picked up her pack of brimstone light 100s and offered them to Henry. Oh, thanks. He did the smoker's ritual and packed them in, tapping the pack in the palm of his hand. Those are already packed, silly she said as Henry put the smoke in his mouth. Yeah, I just like them extra packed for that smooth flavor, he managed to say with the cigarette dangling from the corner of his mouth. April snatched the pack out of his hand. You dork. She lit his cigarette. Mmm, smooth, domestic. April laughed like she always did when he said that, and he said it every time. There you are. There's the real April. You were being so, uh, introspective earlier. I was like, who's this girl? So, what's up? 
April looked around to make sure no one else was listening. There was no one there. This was her smoking spot, and everyone else seemed to gather around the south exit. I think I'm pregnant. Henry's reaction was a sudden cough. I broke up with Todd, and now I think I'm going to have his baby. He's married. It's all a mess. Henry looked around for exit strategies, but he knew he couldn't bail on her. He had to stick around and talk to her. Oh, wow, uh, that is some serious shit, you know. He took a big, long drag from his cigarette, and this burned his throat, and he started coughing again. April didn't seem to notice. Yeah, no shit, it's some serious shit. I'm only 23 years old. I'm not ready to have a baby. I'm not ready for any of this shit. She paused for a moment. His wife isn't as pretty as me. Henry backed up a few steps and threw his smoke to the ground. He had had enough of that. Gosh, I really don't know, uh, April. Maybe you could talk to your mom. She turned around and looked at him like he was the dumbest person on the face of the earth. My mom? Are you kidding me? Henry gave an uneasy smile. She would kill me, and then she would kill Todd. Sounds like Todd probably should be killed, Henry thought to himself. Yeah, I hadn't thought of... April got in Henry's face. And if you think about telling anyone about this, she looked around for witnesses. I will choke you out. Henry could tell she meant it. I promise and cross my heart. He even pictured her for a moment, grabbing him by the throat. This was obviously a really bad time to have approached her. Okay, Henry thought to himself. I need to get out of here and fast. I don't know what to say to this girl and I'm digging a hole. Henry turned to head off. Sorry, April, I need to get back to work. I got a lot of shipments to pack. April flicked her cigarette off the dock. Whatever, dude. Henry liked April, but it was safe to say that his feelings had immediately done an about face. He was done with his chick. The justification started rolling in. I really have nothing in common with her. She's not really very intelligent. Jesus Christ, she could also be pregnant. She seems to like married guys. He started to remember that line from the movie True Lies, where Arnold said to Tia Carrera, You're damaged goods, lady. He increased the speed of his walk back into the main floor and disappeared into a row of crates. This was the height of the activity in the hub, and it was where the strongest smell of paper was, that corrugated cardboard smell that would stick to him all day long, all week, maybe for the rest of his life, as he often felt. There were times when he'd realized he had been carrying those white styrofoam peanuts around with him all day due to static. They'd be clinging to his shirt like those fish that follow sharks around eating off of them. 2. The Hubley Hub was the epicenter of freight flowing into the town of Mulberry. Goods like toys for store shelves, sporting goods equipment, and a plethora of mail-order junk. The kind of stuff you see on late night TV that you can buy now for only nineteen ninety nine, Objects that work your thighs, boxed meals for that perfect diet, instant soda machines. All you do is add soda water. When Henry was younger, his dad used to bring him here and he loved it. His imagination ran wild with all the mystery boxes. What could be inside? Now, this was the place he had to come every day. And he never looked forward to it anymore, unless it was to see April. But now that was shot. What reason could there be now? 
Henry entered the break room where the aroma of coffee was strong. It was still early, so there wouldn't be the smell of burnt popcorn for another few hours. The room had six round tables with four chairs each. There was a 42-inch plasma hung on the wall with several cords dangling down plugged into the wall and a satellite box turned on its side on the floor. He fished for some change in his pocket and bought his favorite drink of choice, a diet energy drink with a lightning bolt on it. It was curiously called Zolt Energy. Caffeine was his drug of choice, and it is what got him through most days, and he was prepared to load up. At the far end of the break room sat at one of the tables was Kenneth, the 40-something hub veteran. He was a few hundred pounds overweight and had just finished cleaning his glasses. He opened his morning paper while taking the time to get a sip of his morning coffee at regular intervals. He had it turned to some right-leaning news station, the kind filled with stuff to get you going with the right anger fuel about the way this country had turned to shit. Kenneth wasn't watching, though. He was working on the crossword. Henry sat down at the table to the left of Kenneth. He enjoyed talking to Kenneth, but he rarely looked at him in the eyes. He would just say something out loud like, Hmm, sounds like a drought is going to give us a beating this year. Kenneth would say, Mm-hmm, I'd bet on it, without so much as looking up. Head tilted slightly to get the perfect look at his paper with his bifocal lenses. Henry pulled out his Genetitech smartphone, it was the latest model called the Bullet, a shiny chrome unit with 5.5-inch high-definition screen, and it was Henry's new favorite toy. He had recently downloaded a new game called Dungeon Creeper, and it could consume hours of his time. In the game was a knight named Sir Chauncey, and you were armed with a trident that you could endlessly hurl at assorted mummies and werewolves that would come toward you in a threatening manner. It was up to the player to guide Chauncey through a maze of catacombs that eventually led to an exit that would lead to another room of catacombs and assorted power-ups. Henry was really taken aback by the graphics on the game. It was amazing the kind of games that there were for phones these days. Henry began playing. The familiar theme played with the sound of a tinny-sounding organ. Following that, you could hear monster growls and swishes that was the trident being fired over and over. Kenneth perked his head up at Henry, annoyed, but then went back to what he was doing. Long shift today? Kenneth asked. Henry answered without looking up. He was too into his game. Yeah, all the way till midnight. I think my dad thinks I can't get into any trouble if I'm working pulling doubles. Kenneth chuckled. He's probably right. Henry frowned. I'm not sure what the hell he's doing while I'm here. Kenneth turned to Henry. He's the man in charge. He's got a lot of stuff to do, he said matter-of-fact. Henry mouthed Kenneth's words to himself quietly in a mocking manner. Henry only saw his dad for a few minutes last night. He sat down in a study room in their massive home going over papers. Henry poked his head into the room to ask him if he needed anything. He didn't and then he headed to his room to read until he fell asleep. This was the Hubley home ritual for as long as Henry could remember, occasionally eating a meal together, but that was about it. There were times Henry would come home from a movie he'd just seen, and he'd be all fired up about how awesome it was. His father would patiently sit and nod his head, and then when Henry was out of breath and coming back down to earth, he would say, That sounds like a good film, son. I'll have to get out to see that. But that wasn't the point to Henry. 
He wanted to share something with his dad, his dear old dad. But Clifford Hubley was somewhere else. His mind was overwhelmed with responsibility, the responsibility of running the hub, the lifeblood of Mulberry. Henry often wondered what the hell his dad was up to and where he went, but he knew that most of the time he could be found in his tower. He would literally had a tower, and it grew right out of the center of the hub and straight into the sky. In reality, it was more than a tower. It was a multi-level controlled center, much like an air traffic control, but it also housed Clifford Hubley's office and living facilities. The living facilities were added during construction when Clifford realized that he could get so much more work done when he could go up the elevator and crash for the night and get cracking early the next morning on the day's agenda. The agenda usually had to do with standing behind the crane controllers who would direct traffic on the dock. The dock consisted of the traffic coming into the hub from all directions. From the air, the hub looked like an octagon with tentacles coming out of it. The tentacles were actually paved paths for delivery trucks, and in the back, actual train tracks for freight offloading. In the back of the hub was the Willoughby River, where ships could dock and more offloading could be done. It wasn't the muscles of men that offloaded this freight. It was the juggernaut that they all affectionately called the Goose. There was actually Big Goose and Little Goose. They were lifting cranes that could pick up tons of weight from the assorted delivery vehicles. It was quite a sight to see when these geese were working in unison. Hubley's two best guys ran the cranes in tandem. People jokingly called them Big G and Little G based on their jobs, but neither one took after their cranes' appearances. Ernie was a greasy-looking guy with lots of scruffy whiskers and hair pulled back into a tight ponytail. His partner, Anthony, who was actually bigger in size than Ernie, ran Little Goose. So he would forever be Little G, or the black one, for the unimaginative employees of the hub. And there were many. The Goose was a state-of-the-art crane system that could be run remotely from the control tower, using high-definition cameras mounted on the crane's outer shell. The cameras didn't stop there. There were cameras all over the hub. Clifford Hubley could keep watch over all of his employees and make sure everything was running smoothly with this setup at his disposal. He had grown to trust his boys running the geese, and he didn't have to worry about them much anymore. They'd been doing this job running on five years, and they barely said a word to each other. They were busy chatting on the comms, on their headsets, being fed instructions from the ground below. Henry had witnessed this before, but it had been a while since he'd seen the boys in action. It was actually quite exhilarating seeing the cranes pick up tons of steel, moving it around the yard so effortlessly, or so it seemed. He'd once even put his hand on the controls before he heard the bark of his father over the PA, making him jump, causing uproarious laughter from the dock workers, knowing that Daddy's little boy was up to no good. Later that evening, Henry had bitched his father out, saying that he'd made him the laughingstock of the entire hub. Clifford sat like he did and listened, and then started off his sentences the way he always did when trying to get through to his son. What you have to understand. There it was. What you have to understand. It wasn't so much an order from his boss, but a plea from his dad. You were putting your hands on a multi-million dollar piece of machinery. The way I reacted was quite calm, quite calm. 
Henry looked down at his feet. If something were to happen to the goose, we'd all be out of a job. The entire city would be screwed. No one would be getting their freight. It would be a logistical nightmare. Henry looked at his dad. I get it. It was stupid. I won't do it again. I was just caught up in the moment. The thing looked like a giant game. Clifford laughed at this. He had had the same thing occur to him on several occasions. It's funny you should say this. I decided I should encourage your curiosity. Mr. Douglas and Mr. Evans won't be able to work at the hub every day forever. We need a backup plan. Henry's face wrinkled with curiosity. Who? Clifford again laughed. Big G and Little G. Henry now understood. I had the lab send over one of the training models from Genetitech. Clifford stood up and walked over to the window. I had them put it out back with a control console. Henry jumped up and ran to the window. He saw a miniature version of Big Goose sitting on the well-manicured green grass of their backyard. In front of it were a half dozen wooden crates. Holy shit! Clifford smiled. It probably shouldn't take you long to get used to the controls. Just be careful with the claw. I don't want you tearing down the gazebo. Henry started to run towards the back door. I'll be careful. Henry played with a crane for a few weeks until the fun turned into work, and the daily questions from his dad went from genuine enthusiasm to disappointment when he stopped working hard. This is usually how it went. Henry showed interest in something, and then dad encouraged, usually with an expensive gift. He meant well. He wanted his son to succeed, but as soon as Clifford began to hound him about his progress, Henry seemed to stop working. Clifford vowed to end the cycle, but it always repeated itself. If you were to enter Henry's floor of the Hubley Manor, you would find stacks of books, video games, computers, electronic equipment, and a giant screen television, and everything that went with those items. Blu-ray movies, video game discs, remotes out the wazoo. There were even a number of custom-made gaming chairs with fancy vibrating seats for awesome interactivity. Henry had wanted to be an animator, a video game designer, a sound engineer, a film director. Okay, Clifford would say, and soon he'd have a stack of school pamphlets ready to ship Henry off for further study in the required field. Henry would balk and slink back up to his room, where Clifford would soon hear the deep rumble of subwoofer bass shaking the very foundation of the house. So the hub is where Henry stayed. It was his safe haven. His bubble, the place where he could do the minimal amount of work and earn a living and keep the old man off his back. It didn't matter if everyone thought of him as a lazy shit that only had a job because of his dad. It didn't matter, and it wouldn't matter. He closed his game by hitting the home button and checked his email. He had 15 unopened messages. He scanned each line seeing if there was anything of interest when he saw the words... Mysterious Game Launch Tuesday, Genetitech Games. Holy crap! What was that about? He'd been reading about it for months, and that was a few years ago. It had slipped his mind. He'd been anticipating it for so long, and now here it was. This mysterious state-of-the-art, massively multiplayer online role-playing game that was going to revolutionize gaming. It was like real life. In theory, you could do anything in the game. Be whoever you wanted to be. Own your own property, aircraft, weapons. 
But it was all just rumors. For over two years, Henry had read about speculation on this mysterious game. Henry already knew whatever the game was, he wanted to be a ranger. He was always a ranger at every type of game he played. He was a huge fan of Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings, and he was always the go-to archetype for Henry. But this time, in this game, maybe he would be a ranger with a spaceship, a blaster, some type of pet, maybe some robots. Yeah, that would be fine. Henry hit the link for a video in the email. The phone displayed a lovely high-def image of a silhouette of a strong figure standing on a pedestal. The black form changed shape to what appeared to be a sexy curved female, then a dwarf, and then grew in size to a four-armed mass of muscle. A voice played, Choose your hero. Henry smiled. The screen faded back, and then a massive cityscape appeared. The POV shot raised up over the city, and then snaked its way between buildings showing city streets, fountains, storefronts. The POV flew down the street going faster, and finally stopping right at the edge of the water of the virtual coastline. The words, Apocrypha, rose from the ocean, and then began to glow until the screen went white, and then the video was over. Henry mouthed that word to himself in a hushed whisper. He stared at the screen for a moment, and then he realized that someone was standing over his shoulder and had been watching the video with him. It was the mustachioed dock worker, Dewey. How did Henry not notice him before with his stench of sweat and bad breath hovering behind his neck? Damn, what the hell is that? Looks pretty sweet. Is that the new superhero flick coming out? Henry quickly put his phone away. Nah, it's just a game, dude. Dewey pulled out a chair and sat next to Henry. Henry's face changed to a shade of yuck. That was the ritual. Dewey would sit and talk to him and force him to tell him about the latest films and games. Henry loved talking to people about that subject. They were the things that he enjoyed, but why did it have to be with Dewey? Why couldn't it be with the number of cute girls that worked in the office area like the girl who had just walked in? What was her name? Jenna. Yeah, that was it. She was no April, but now April wasn't April anymore. And he needed to find a new girl to stare at. He could stare at her butt as she walked around the break room and stare at the snack machine. A girl he could get close to when he stood at the fridge too long so he could smell her perfume. He was now noticing Jenna for the first time. Sure, he'd seen her before, but April was more of his type. But forget that now. April was a distant memory. What it had been, maybe 10-15 minutes? No, this girl, Jenna. Wow, look at how she wears her hair. She had that cool hair pulled back in a ponytail, but she still had some hair draping over her shoulders, and her hair was a nice chestnut brown. Henry's posture straightened, and he sucked in his belly as best he could. His eyes followed Jenna as she went from the snack machine to the soda machine, and there his eyes now met Dewey's. Stupid Dewey. What was Dewey saying? Henry did know. He heard the violins in his head. It was like Jenna was moving in slow motion, putting the quarters into the coin slot. One, then another, and then another. The coins made a nice kerplink sound as they hit the bottom of whatever black abyss they resided in, in the bowels of that machine. Did she buy a Diet Zolt Cola just like him? That would be neat. But no, it was a Pepsi. Not a Diet Pepsi, but a standard Pepsi. 
That's okay. It's the choice of a new generation, he thought. And we'd be playing that game for hours and hours, and I'd hardly get up to take a shit. I nearly shit myself once at my computer. That would have been a huge mess, but we had a nice guild going. We would be raping and pillaging. It was great. You could actually steal stuff from other players' villages. You couldn't really rape anybody, but you could incapacitate the bitches in the game and lay prone on top of them, and then trash talk them like you were raping them. Jesus, how many times did this asshole just say rape? He said rape about 20 times in front of Jenna. What an asshole. Did this moron realize that the women in the game probably weren't even women? They were surely dudes who chose to have female avatars. But most likely this video game raping was happening as a fuck you to the other player. But still, it was kind of disturbing. Dude, dude, cool it with the rape, Henry said with his eyes on Jenna the whole time hoping she wasn't paying the slightest bit of attention to this ridiculous conversation. He heard Kenneth clear his throat and ruffle his newspaper, but Jenna was still standing there facing the soda machine, popping the tab on her Pepsi Cola. She was still in slow motion, tilting her head back and drinking her delicious beverage. Henry imagined condensation dripping off the can and rolling down her neck and into her shirt. The graphics sucked ass, though. Back then, computers had worthless-as-fuck graphics cards. Shit, I was on fucking dial-up. Henry rested his head on the palm of his right hand. He closed his eyes. What time do you clock in, Dewey? Dewey turned to the time clock on the wall. Ah, fuck! Dewey jumped up to clock in. He didn't even say goodbye. Thank Christ that asshole was gone. Henry decided that perhaps he should go stand next to Jenna. Maybe pretend he needed to use the machine. But wait! Shit, she was done, and sitting down at another table, opposite of him and Kenneth. Does anyone mind if I change the channel? Jenna asked. Henry quickly jumped up and grabbed the remote control from the snack counter and slid it over to Jenna at her table. Not at all. Enjoy. Enjoy? What a jackass, he thought. She said nothing and began looking at the on-screen guy. Henry watched her click through the various television offerings. He noticed that she had chocolate snack cakes with her Pepsi. Jenna turned it to the local news. The Mulberry News with your hosts, Trenton McGuire and Betty Mulroney. He was a huge fan of Betty and her weapons of mass distraction. He wasn't paying attention to what they were saying at first, but then he noticed that they had cut to a field reporter, and that reporter was standing in front of some kind of accident. A massive car pileup, was it? No, it was a train wreck with cars, it looked like. He could see the reporter sticking one finger in an ear and trying to hear what Trenton or Betty was trying to say to them. It's a tragic morning here in nearby Topanga with a train derailment that caused several car crashes, resulting in a number of deaths. Trenton butted in. Is there any word on what could have caused this accident to happen in the first place, Rob? Rob, the reporter, took a while to answer because of the delay. From what a few of the first responders have said was that there were some people standing in the road, and one driver served to keep from hitting those people and ran right onto the tracks. I'm afraid he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, as a train passing at that exact time ended in a huge collision. Betty then butted in. Our hopes and prayers are with all of the people involved. We'll check back with more news on the accident as it develops. Now it was Trenton's turn to chime in. We will be right back with a local chef here to teach Betty how to cook pigs in a blanket. God help us. 
They broke for commercial with playful laughs with each other. That's really sad, Jenna said. How could a woman her age not know how to make pigs in a blanket? Henry turned to her, and then after a moment, he laughed. I know, right? Henry took a drink from his soda and shifted towards her in his seat. That's pretty crazy. I wonder why people were standing in the road. Jenna said nothing. I'm sure they had their reasons. People do a lot of crazy things these days, Kenneth said, looking up from his paper for a moment. Thanks, Kenneth. That was quite a thought there to consider. Someone probably lost a contact lens, she said, matter-of-factly. It happens, you know. Henry nodded yes. What was she talking about? This bitch be crazy. I like her, he thought. 3. When the Mulberry Morning Show returned, Trenton and Betty had their serious news-delivering faces on. This just in, a wave of terror is spreading around the globe. Betty had said before it was Trenton's turn. Death, death, and more death is what we are hearing from several major news outlets. The camera then cut to a heavily pixelated video feed of a figure approaching another figure. It looked like they were hugging for a moment, then the person fainted to the ground. We apologize for the graphic nature of this footage, Trenton warned. Henry wondered what was graphic about that. This footage was taken, we're told, somewhere in Canada. Jenna scoffed at this. Somewhere? Wow, that's informative. Wow, she really was a cynical chick, wasn't she? Betty continued. Attacks like this have been happening frequently since the video was shot. People are dropping dead in huge numbers. Nothing is known about what is causing this. Trenton broke in. We must warn you again. What you are about to see can be very upsetting, especially if you have a weak constitution. A voice boomed from behind Henry. Oh shit, Henry, you better not watch this then. Fucking Dewey was back. Jenna turned to laugh at him and then finally made eye contact with Henry. She flashed him a smile. He immediately felt his cheeks warm. What they saw of the video footage was more of what appeared to be people hugging other people. It was just so hard to tell. The surveillance camera footage was really low quality. The footage depicted people grabbing other people and hugging them tightly. Was this footage of someone being welcomed home? Was this some sort of reunion footage? No, wait, they weren't hugging the other people, were they? Surely not. They were biting them. They were taking bites out of them. My God, they were grabbing people and taking bites out of their flesh. Dewey walked closer to the television. He was having trouble making out what he was seeing, and he did not want to believe what he was seeing. What is that? I don't... I don't... Fuck! He put his hand over his mouth. He had to take a seat, but missed the closest chair and fell to the floor. But he didn't even try to get up. He stayed on the floor and continued to stare at the screen. Where is this? He asked. No one answered at first. They were in just as much shock. Somewhere in Canada, I think, Kenneth said. Yeah, Canada. They don't know where. Jenna had said as Dewey reached up to the table to write himself. Holy shit, man. This shit is insane. I mean, it looks like those people are eating other people. They're fucking eating them, man. Dewey turned to face Henry, and Henry said nothing. He nodded. Shit, I need to clock in and get to work. Let me know if anything else happens, okay? Jenna said. She clocked in and left the room. 
Dewey composed himself, realizing he, too, had to report for work. Yeah, let me know what happens, okay, Henry? Henry looked at him, wrinkling his nose. Me? I have to work, too, you know. Kenneth chuckled at this. Yeah, right, dude. Owner's son, man. You don't have to do shit. Just let me know if any of that shit hits North America. Nobody cares about Canada anyway. Dewey left the room. Henry's blank stare turned into a smile. North America. He began to laugh and turned to Kenneth. Kenneth began laughing too. Four. In the hours that followed, Henry would routinely return to the break room to see if there was any new news on the death situation. And every time he checked, the news was worse. The death was spreading. The situation was dire in Canada. People in massive numbers were attacking other people for no reason. They were cannibalistic attacks, and no one knew why. When Henry returned to the break room for lunch, they were now calling the wave of death the Death Tide. The Death Tide was coming closer, and it could possibly reach the U.S. very soon. Why hadn't anyone opened fire on these crazies? He figured it was because people in Canada didn't have guns the way people in America did. Everyone had a gun here. He didn't own a gun, but everyone else did, didn't they? He figured it must be true. Certainly someone like Dewey had a closet full of guns and probably had a few grenades too. If the death tide was indeed coming here, would it be stopped? We had an army. We had the Marines. We had rednecks and hillbillies loaded for bear. They would blow those people away. People. Why were there so many? It was like the insanity was spreading. The news had figured out that much. You get bit and you die, and then something else happened. Eventually those dead people get up and start walking, and then they'd find someone to bite, and it happened over and over. People would flee to their homes and other buildings and wait it out. Hopefully they would leave or drop dead. But how could they? They were already dead. These ghouls, one reporter said that stuck with Henry. Ghouls. They were fucking ghouls. Henry decided it was time to call his father. He had to know what his dad thought of all of this business. He barely spoke to his dad much lately, but Henry knew this was the only person he could talk to that could make sense of all this mess and hopefully make him feel better. And when he felt better, he could go back to doing what he did best in life. He could anticipate the new game coming out. He could get up early, go to the local brick and mortar electronics store, or he could pry open a box here at the hub and steal a game, which he'd done before, but... He hadn't done it in a long time because he knew his dad was on to him. But yes, it was time to call his father. 5. Clifford Hubley had no idea when he started the day that it would be his last day to live on this earth. How could anyone know? No one knew when their ticket was up. And on this day, there was going to be a lot of cashing in. He was in his Mercedes on the interstate on his way to downtown Mulberry and traffic was thick. Clifford always prepared for the busy morning traffic with the radio on his favorite classical music station and with a hot tumbler of coffee and a muffin from Granana's coffee shop. By the time he'd arrive at the hub, he would happily drain his bladder, but on this day he was headed in the opposite direction. He was headed to a meeting, and he really had to pee. Ten years ago, Genetitech Systems had arrived in Mulberry and built a factory that provided thousands of jobs to the city. In all these years, Genetitech used their own trucks to accept and deliver their own parts and products to the southern part of the U.S. 
Clifford knew that if they ever got a piece of that business, it would be a huge payday for him and his family. His family of two. Him and Henry. His employees too, of course. He thought for a brief moment of Kathleen, his wife. His ex-wife. How many years ago had she left? He couldn't remember at the moment, but she didn't just leave him and his son, but the entire town, and she hadn't been in contact since. Clifford wasted the time and money to look for her for a while, until he one day received a message from her to cease and desist trying to find her. It's over! Henry went through a tough time after that. Maybe he was still going through it. Maybe everything he ever did was from the repercussions of losing his mother, but Clifford wasn't sure. None of that really mattered. He would be able to spend more time with Henry now. This deal would make him a rich man, and it would loosen the noose that he felt was around his neck. Maybe a little. It might take a little bit of time to get everything in perfect operation, but he would soon be free to spend time with his son. He thought of a woman. That woman that was always reading a new book at the coffee shop. She never hesitated to smile at him. And this was every single day. He would glance at her and try to focus on the title of the book she was reading. And she caught him every time and smiled. It was a beautiful smile. One that he always returned. But he wasn't about to think about relationships. Not with his job. Not with his responsibility. But he did promise himself when all this shit is over and he can finally breathe, he's going to ask that woman out. He is going to walk up to her and introduce himself and ask her, What you reading? And she would smile and tell him, and he would say, My name is Cliff. May I ask you, what is yours? And she would tell him. He tried to guess many times that it was probably Mary, Susan, or Lisa. God, please don't be Kathleen. He thought and chuckled to himself. That would be just the luck. A honk of a car horn from behind him snapped him out of his daydream, and he realized that he had not moved an inch in possibly five minutes. This traffic was horrible, and it was backed up for miles from what he could tell from his rearview mirror. He searched the tuner for local news. Maybe there was a traffic report that could tell him what the goddamn holdup was. He heard the words devastating and carnage, and stopped the tuner in its spot to hear what the delay could possibly be. The man on the radio had a serious tone to his voice, and the situation seemed dire. This morning's train accident in Topanga has rerouted thousands of cars on their morning commute to downtown Mulberry. Betty, I have not seen these cars move for over six minutes now, and the drivers are getting impatient. I'm not even sure if you can hear me over the car horns right now. It is sheer pandemonium. The in-studio female radio personality quickly responded, We can hear you just fine, Chuck. Clifford scoffed and turned the radio off. His backdoor neighbor and the Chrysler honked at him again, making him jump. He turned and gave him a dirty look, and the guy promptly flipped him the bird. Under his breath, he let out a slow, Fuck you too, buddy. His bladder was going to explode, he felt, at any minute. He looked on either side of the freeway. Perhaps he could hop out of the car and drain the lizard and quickly hop back in before the traffic moved an inch. Who was he kidding? They still hadn't moved in what was now going on ten minutes. As he looked around, he saw there was no bush to hide behind, no alley to duck into. If he was going to go to it, it would have to be off the edge of the guardrail. And he noticed that they were on the stretch of freeway that was right over the Willoughby River. 
the same river that flowed right past the hub. He chuckled, picturing himself whizzing off the side of the overpass. But that would not do. He was the boss of a fairly important business, and he couldn't risk winding up on YouTube or something worse, showing his manhood to the world. No, he would have to improvise. Now, he could pee in his suit pants, but then he'd show up to a room full of important suits at Genetitech and greet them with a big wet stain on his crotch. Or he could urinate in his coffee tumbler. That would have to do. He rolled down his driver's side window, immediately letting in the foul smell of car exhaust and engine noise, and dumped his coffee out. Okay, am I really going to do this? He thought to himself, reminding him of a road trip that he and Kathleen took when she was about six months pregnant with Henry. It was their last hurrah before parenthood stole all of their time. They were on their way to the beach in Corpus Christi, and he had to pee. But they were making great time. Kathleen always joked that he had a baby bladder, to which he could not disagree, and it was even worse now at his age. He was pushing mid-fifties, and he was already getting up at 4 a.m. to go every night. Kathleen had reached into the back seat and retrieved an empty orange juice jug that they had passed back and forth in the early hours for the breakfast. "'Fill her up, Mr. Hubley?' she said, letting it dangle from her hand. He let out a laugh and said, "'Fuck it.' But now he was alone." Even better, he zipped down his fly and pulled it out, and then started relieving himself, and he couldn't help but let out a sound of joy and relief. He was so eager to unburden his urge to go that he forgot to roll his window back up. His urine was nearly filled to the brim of his tumbler when his left arm elbow, which was resting on the window, because of the sheer joy of letting his bladder go, was bumped, and he released the tumbler from his grip, and it spilled on the floor of his car. Jesus Christ, he said, turning to see who had just caused this disaster in his car, the smell of urine already wafting into his nasal passages. The person that bumped him was long gone. They had already run past, but now there was another one and another one. Man, woman, and child. They all had frightened looks on their faces. Clifford's phone began to buzz. He had already put it on vibrate, anticipating the embarrassing moment in front of his new colleagues. When his phone would ring, right in mid-sentence, explaining why he was the man for the job. No way. He was prepared, and that meant putting that damn nuisance on vibrate. Clifford saw the face of his son on his smartphone screen, and quickly answered while rolling up his electric window with his left hand. Henry, something's going on. Before he heard a word on the other end of the line, he saw them. They didn't look like normal people. There was something gray about them, washed out. They almost looked like all of the color had been erased from them. Even their clothes were without color. But their eyes, my God, their eyes, were they glowing? He had to be seeing things. He said it again to Henry, There's something happening. His son answered him with a question. Dad, are you okay? What's going on? But Clifford didn't answer. There were more of them. Possibly twenty. No, thirty. They were coming this way. He saw in the rear view that people, the normal people, were running in the opposite direction. And here he was on the phone sitting in his car like an asshole. Was the world ending and he wasn't even paying attention? Henry, there's people. They're coming. 
I don't know what's going on. His voice got quieter as the first one was only ten feet away from his car. It was a bearded man, probably in his thirties, wearing a hooded sweat jacket that was up over his head. His long, messy hair poked out. He walked in a trance right past the car. He didn't see him or didn't care about him. Clifford's eyes followed the man as he walked by. He sank lower in his chair. There's something wrong with these people, he whispered. They don't seem right. 6. When Henry dialed his father, he was standing outside on the back dock. There were too many people now gathered in the break room, and he wouldn't be able to hear, so he took a step outside where he could hear the melodic squeal of Big Goose and Little Goose in action. It was a sound that he had grown so accustomed to that he didn't realize that it was louder than any throng of people in the break room. When his dad spoke on the other end of his phone, he couldn't make out the first words he had spoken. He stuck a finger in his ear and quickly ducked under the metal garage door that led back inside. His dad had said something was happening. What is happening, dad? He thought, but didn't say when his father said it again. There's something happening. He sounded aghast. He sounded like Henry had never heard him sound before. That wasn't quite true. He had heard him sound like that the day he found the note, the one from his mom that she left on the dining room table, the one that said she was leaving and never coming back. Clifford had grabbed his then 10-year-old son and threw him in the car and then drove all over town looking for her. He checked hotels, he checked restaurants and rest stops, until he finally pulled to the side of the road and cried. He cried like Henry had never seen him before or since. That panic that he remembered then was happening right now. Dad, are you okay? What is going on? There was that low hum you hear during pauses on phone conversations on a bad connection. The pops and the hisses. And then his dad spoke. Henry, there's people. They're coming. I don't know what's going on. Henry had to switch hands. His palms were getting sweaty. Curse this damn phone, he thought for a nanosecond. He thought the chrome alloy plating was badass when he had first saw it, but it was completely impractical. You had to concentrate to keep the damn thing in your hand so it wouldn't slip out of reach. There's something wrong with these people, he whispered. They don't seem right. When Henry's dad said those words, his heart sank. No, 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 no he said as he bumped and banged into crates and workbenches as he ran back to the break room. There were possibly 20 employees inside. They were all talking loudly. Everyone shut up! Henry shouted. Everyone turned to him. Where is the death tide? Where's the stupid death tide? He was sweating bullets now when Dewey answered him. Dewey's face was a pure horror. In fact, everyone there was frozen with fear. Everyone was watching the North. No one was watching the South, Dewey said. Henry looked at the TV screen. Displayed on the high-def television was a map of the United States, and the red was covering all of Canada, and the red now spilled into the United States from the Northwest. The death tide had reached Washington, and the top half of Oregon, and was now spilling into the neighboring states of Montana and Idaho. On the eastern side of the map, the red was in Detroit and New York. Henry's jaw dropped open as his eyes glanced to the bottom of the map. Red. 
there was the color red in all of South America and then Mexico. All red. Texas. The red was in Texas. There was Corpus Christi, San Antonio, and Houston. The red was all the way up to Fort Worth and making its way into Dallas. Henry just realized that the red was animated. It wasn't a still picture. The red was actually moving in real time. Who or what was calculating all this? A human? A computer? This was a real-time projection by the newscast, and they were treating it as if it were accurate. Mulberry resided northeast of Dallas, about 100 miles away, and the death tide could already be here. It was here. The death tide was here. 7. Clifford could now see dozens of strange colorless people with red eyes. They walked with a purpose, following the freeway lane boxed in by the jammed rows of idling cars. Clifford wasn't sure what would happen if they saw him, but he was pretty sure it would be bad. He had that feeling based on the amount of blood he saw splattered on their ripped clothing. A woman wearing a blue power business suit staggered forward, clotted blood dripping from her throat in clumps. A heavyset police officer dragged one foot behind him as he slowly trudged forward, his mouth covered in blood. He had recently fed on something. Clifford, hidden, could barely get much of a view, as the colorless people were now passing his car. One of them, a man in an orange vest, possibly a construction worker, playfully slid his bloody lump of a hand, missing a thumb and forefinger, along Clifford's Mercedes, up the windshield, across the roof, and now down the back of the window, and then off the trunk, leaving a snail trail of blood. Dad, can you hear me? Henry said on the phone. Clifford tucked the phone away in fear of being heard by the colorless ones. Henry kept on pleading with his dad to say something, but Clifford couldn't hear him. Just let them pass, he thought. Just let them walk by and I'll be fine. But he was too afraid to poke his head up to see just how many more of them there were. He couldn't get any lower in his car. He wanted badly to lay on the floorboard, but his frame was just too large. God damn, there's Mercedes. Beads of sweat rolled down his face. His breathing became more labored. I'm on a bridge he thought. I could jump out of the car and leap off the edge into the water. He swallowed hard. Would they follow me? Would I survive the jump? All good questions. Clifford did know one thing. He would have to act soon. End of chapter. Well, guys, that was the end of chapter one. I hope you enjoyed it. If you are enjoying this, if you think it's kind of a neat idea and you want to hear more of my story of Dead Ahead, send it to nimpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you guys. I need somebody to get me to keep writing. I love writing, but I have no discipline, guys. I'll write for a while, and I'll just stop. But if I have somebody encouraging me, basically what I need is cheerleaders, guys. I need somebody saying, hey, this sounds pretty good. You don't have to lie. Hey, I want to hear more, whatever. I'm not really looking for a critique right now. This is a rough draft, after all. Uh, I have an idea of some things I want to rewrite. But all the things you read about writing a book are just get that first draft done. Now, I have written over 80,000 words of this book. Maybe you guys can help me continue it. So if you guys are enjoying this, 
let me know. And I'll do chapter two. I'm recording this now way after I recorded my reading of chapter one. It took a while to edit it because you mess up a lot and you have to fix it and stuff like that. But I see parts where I need more energy. I don't know if I need to read for 30 minutes, take a break, come back or whatever. But it is hard to do this (laughs) that I'm learning. I don't know how people do it professionally, but I want to give a performance in a way. So if I'll think of some other ideas for chapter two to do better, essentially. Now, I want to thank everyone for being a patron of Entertainment Landfill. This is something new. Hopefully, if you think it's neat and if I'm proud of it or whatever, maybe I can put it on the regular feed. But I want to thank everybody for taking the time. If you listen to this whole thing, I appreciate it. All right, guys. Talk to you later. And don't forget to send that feedback. Now, this is podcasting. 